As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. I just have a little cold, that's why I've got the mask on here. Did take a COVID test, it was negative. And I was excited to share the word with you, but uh, didn't want to share my germs with you. 
My name is Corey Garrett, and my wife Katie and I are members here at the barn. And uh, we are usually in Senegal. Uh, we've been here for a while, but we're usually in Senegal and West Africa, and uh, encouraging people to look more deeply at who Jesus is. And so it's exciting to be able to do that with you all this morning. We are in the middle of a sermon series called uh, Learn from the Humble God, the Heart and Motivations of Jesus Revealed in All the Scriptures, and very gently uh, following along with this book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. Uh, there has, I know many of you have a copy of this book. There have been some uh, copies at the back for several weeks, but I think this might be the last one. So if you didn't get a, a copy and you want one, see me, I'm making a list and we'll figure out how to get that to you. So we'll reference this a couple of times today, but just wanted to recall that to us. In our scripture today, Jesus um, has some surprises that he is springing on people. Um, when people surprise you, they reveal something. Uh, recently, uh, many of us were surprised during uh, an award show when somebody who was known for their amiable, good-natured, uh, even temper uh, smacked somebody on live TV. Um, a few years ago, there was a, uh, a, a, a mass killing in an in a Amish community, and the people were very surprised, uh, not the people that were there, but the, 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 the nation was very surprised at the uh, mercy that came out of this community rather than judgment. And it's when we really spend time with people, right, that they, you, we kind of give them an opportunity to surprise us. And uh, that is what happens when we do uh, Bible reading and Bible study. And that's uh, what we want to look at today is how Jesus is surprising the people back then and also maybe surprising us today. Now the story is quickly told. Jesus rides into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. The people are very excited. That's the action. But the meaning is really contained in the prophecy, the verse that Matthew gives us to frame what's happening. In Zechariah 9.9, the prophet writes, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, many of you know that a war horse would be the, the, the steed of a, 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 a king who has come to conquer, to make war, and a king who comes in peace is coming on a colt. But in the ancient Near East, think about what a peaceful king consists of. A peaceful king in the ancient Near East is somebody who has subdued all the peoples around him and is so strong nobody would dare come and attack him. That is, in fact, the context of the Zechariah 9-9 prophecy. It's talking in detail about the different nations that are surrounding Israel and how the Messiah is going to come and free the people of Israel from the tyranny of those peoples, free the people of Israel from fear. So we have a picture here of a, a humble king, of a peaceful king, of a gentle king, but one who is peaceful to his people, but fierce to the people who oppress his people. An image we can compare this uh, to could be in World War, at the end of World War II in uh, Times Square, there was all these soldiers that were celebrating, and people celebrating with the soldiers, saying, we are free from the tyranny 
of these past few years. We're free from the fear of these past few years. And this is the context, this is what we think of when we, when we have this Zechariah 9-9 prophecy. But the plot thickens because after Zechariah wrote this prophecy, this expectation of the Messiah coming on a cult gave rise to a surprising tradition. Biblical scholar Kim Huat Tan writes this. Stories of pilgrims and important visitors making their visits to Jerusalem are frequently told. In all these stories, it is assumed that anyone visiting Jerusalem must walk on foot. Even the noble and the royal have to comply. First century Jewish historian Josephus relates a story of Alexander the Great making his trip to Jerusalem and this king of kings has to dismount from his horse and walk the whole way into the city. It is enforced because of the sacredness of the city. The practice is so important that anyone who cannot walk into Jerusalem because he or she is too sickly is exempted from making the pilgrimage even for important festivals like Passover. This is not an Old Testament ordinance but a rabbinic ordinance from that time period. This reinforces the unspoken rule that a person must not ride into Jerusalem. In this regard, Jesus' action of riding into Jerusalem is extremely provocative. Remember, we have no other scene of Jesus riding any animals in all the Gospels. To this point, Jesus has said time and time again to people who he's healed or who have, who have acknowledged him as the Messiah, don't tell anybody. Also, at this point in the story, the Jews have already decided to kill Jesus. The Jewish leadership has already decided to kill Jesus. Now, in the context of this, Jesus keeping it secret, the Jewish leadership having decided to, to kill Jesus, Jesus turns to his disciples and said, you thought we had conflict with the religious leaders? Hold my wine. Let me just, let me just, let me just ride into Jerusalem, do what nobody dares to do, fulfill this Old Testament prophet. I'm going to set this city on fire. And that's exactly what he does. The disciples say, wow, that escalated quickly. He's riding into Jerusalem like an Old West gunslinger. He has not come to bring peace. He has come that blood will run in these streets. People have taken over this peaceful town, and they've done with it what they wanted to, and he has come to liberate his people. But the blood that's going to flow in the streets, of course, will be his own. This symbol, this acted symbol that Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday is extremely aggressive towards the powers that be. At the same time, he's very gentle towards his people. He is a warrior for his people. He is protecting them. He's accessible, a symbol of hope to people on the street. And people are excited. When I was a kid, I wondered every Palm Sunday, so what is the deal with these palms? Why are they waving around these palms? Yes, they're excited, but that's not the first thing I grab when I'm excited. So the context of the palms was in the Old Testament. There was during the Feast of Booths. God actually, in the, the law, said during the Feast of Booths, wave the palm branches in excitement. Okay, so that's where it came from. And then in the Maccabean period, intertestamental period, they actually would start to uh, wave the palm branches when Israel would achieve a military victory. So it had this lots of kind of military and also religious symbolism for uh, the Jews of the time. So they are excited. They are welcoming him. They're excited to see him. Now, Matthew does something very interesting. As you see on the display here, 
he actually leaves out one of the lines. Now, why do you think he does this? Does this? Did he, uh, did he uh, take some sick days when they were covering Zechariah? Is he being a little bit careless? What's he doing? He is emphasizing the thing that he wants you to pick up on from this scene. He's not carelessly leaving out this, this line. He knows that if people go on to, to read, they'll, they'll actually see that righteousness and salvation is he. He's not going to downplay that, but he wants to play up Jesus' humility. The word, actually, that is translated humble here in this verse is the same as the word translated gentle in the theme verse for this book, Matthew eleven twenty nine. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Same Greek word that Matthew uses in this verse for humble, to translate that from the Hebrew. So what kind of king is Jesus revealing himself to be? Powerful and a conqueror, yet humble and with and for his people. Fierce to those who would deny him, but to those who accept him, a powerful protector. James Hamilton uh, Jr. Uh, commenting on this passage says, the kind of king who entered Jerusalem in triumph is the kind who makes himself poor so that his people can be rich, puts himself between his people and the dangers they face, defends his people at the cost of his own life, and concerns himself always with the needs of his people. Now, I, I don't want to say this guy's perfect. I, I don't want to say, put him up on a pedestal and say you know, everything he does. Is, but what a picture Zelensky has actually given us of this kind of a leader, of a king, not a king, but a president, but of a leader who puts himself between those who would harm his people and his people, who stays with his people, even when he knows there's a pretty good chance he could end up dead in the streets. When uh, the United States offered to evacuate him, he said, no, I'm staying with my people. They said, well, aren't you afraid to die? He said, yeah, I'm afraid of dying, but there's other things that are to be feared more than death. That's a very loose translation from the Ukrainian. My Ukrainian is quite rusty. Jesus is revealing himself as a king, powerful but gentle. What else does he reveal here? Jesus reveals himself as a prophet, bringing the power and the message of God. Now, early in the, in the passage, uh, Jesus sends his disciples to go get this donkey, right? And so this is always a confusing story to me because I was thinking, okay, well, what is this calling back? Is this a callback from earlier in the show that I should be picking up on? Then, as try as I might, I can't think of any other uh, example of an Old Testament prophet doing this or something similar. At this point, the gloves are off. Jesus is flexing. He's saying, well, we were keeping it hidden, but now I'm just getting, I'm just going to let you know. Uh, I can do anything I want. Watch this. Boom. He's showing that he has, he's like an Old Testament prophet of old. He has the power of God and he can use it. The people understand this. You look in the, uh, towards the end of the Matthew 21, or let's say in the middle of the, of the passage that we read today, but towards the end of the the actual triumphal entry passage. Matthew 21, 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the people are accepting as a prophet. There's no, no more of this good teacher or rabbi business. That's over. Now it's the prophet. 
But what kind of prophet? Nazareth of Galilee. Galilee in Greek is a word that simply means district or circle. If you don't actually say circle or district of what, it doesn't mean anything. The full name of the city, uh, or the, the region, I'm sorry, is Galilee of the Gentiles. This is um, not where the cool kids are. Uh, some, of, some of you may be familiar with the phrase that we have in America, the flyover states. Uh, every, everything between, uh, you know, everything uh, between, you know, the east and the west coast is flyover states. These things, are, uh, these are places that we don't want to go, we don't want to see, we don't want to hear about. And that's basically what we're talking about here. Uh, here you have uh, Judea, that's where the cool kids are. You have Galilee, and that's where the hillbillies are. And in between, Samaria. Let's not even talk about Samaria. This is a prophet for the forgotten for the downtrodden. This is a prophet for the marginal and the ones who do not belong. Jesus is revealing himself. He reveals himself in another way as well. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but just the first little bit. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And he goes on from there to pronounce a judgment over Jerusalem. When we think of prophet, we can, sometimes we can think of a, uh, a you know, fire and brimstone, uh, the judgment, the anger of the prophets. But what does Jesus show us here? What, how is he revealing himself? This takes place in Luke's account right between the triumphal entry and cleansing the temple. He's showing himself to be a prophet who judges but with tears. When the people are in sin, he doesn't yell at them. He cries over them. Imagine the motion that he has when we're going through difficulties, if this is how he responds to our sin. In fact, this is one of the big points of Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, is Jesus' heart goes out to us most when we're in sin and when we're in turmoil. Look just before the account of the triumphal entry in John, and what do you see? The story of Lazarus, Jesus raising Lazarus. How does Jesus respond to Lazarus' death? He weeps. This is the heart of Jesus. He's showing us what he's like. When we are in sin, his heart goes out to us. He cries for us. When we're in turmoil, we have family members that have died. His heart goes out to us. He's crying with us and for us. This is the kind of prophet that we have in Jesus. Jesus is the powerful, overlooked, and disrespected prophet who cries over us when we're in sin and difficulty. So, what else does Jesus reveal here? Jesus reveals himself as a priest, one who represents the people to God, taking away their sin. Now, as priest, in this particular passage, we see how he cleanses the temple. He makes a way for people to approach God. But he does not, at this moment, sacrifice. Of course, later on in the week, he will be both priest and sacrifice. That comes later on in the week, and I'm going to leave the, that to others to address. He's not very gentle and lowly here as he cleanses the temple, is he? He's quite fierce. I hope you see the pattern. Powerful and fierce to those who deny him, but gentle, humble, and accessible to his people, the blind, the lame, the children. But as we're talking about his priestly role, there's something that uh, I want to touch on that uh, Dane 
explains very clearly in his book, and I'm indebted to him for what follows here. This is a, a passage that talks about Jesus' priestly role right now, on an ongoing basis. It's something that he's doing today. He, he did pay for our sins and sat down at the right hand of the Father, but there is an ongoing work that he continues to do that he's doing right now. Let's look at this. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, when I have read this passage in the past, I'm sure if I thought about it at all, I would have said uh, he's interceding for us for our maybe daily needs, for what we need uh, on, on a daily basis. He's like kind of praying along with us as the Holy Spirit does. Um, but it's interesting, Dane points this out in his book again, he's praying for things that lead to salvation. This is the other passage where the New Testament talks about Jesus' intercession. And again, it is in the context of salvation, for forgiveness of sins. Who is to condemn? for sins. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us on an ongoing basis. This is um, a thing that Jesus is doing right now, applying what he did on the cross to every new sin that you commit, to every new failure that we uh, fall into. The intercession, as Dane says, intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. The gospel is not a one-time fill-up, and then it's up to us to do the best that we can. The Holy Spirit is working in us to make us more Christ-like. At the same time, Christ is working still with every sin, reapplying the cross to us. Note this means that we are still sinners. We don't have any uh, sense that we're going to be able to stop sinning. And that is a comfort because we see in our, in our hearts and in our, our lives that we do keep sinning. But we know that we have a priest who is continually interceding on our behalf to the Father. Note also that this saving is not, you know, a, a halfway thing. It's to the uttermost. As Dane writes, we're not saved for the most part, but to the uttermost. I think certainly we can think of Jesus interceding on behalf of us, uh, let's say, in our daily needs as well. But a main uh, thrust here is that he is continuing to save us powerfully. So what have we said here? How can we sum up what Jesus is showing us in prophetic Acts, symbolic acts during uh, the um, event that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. We have a powerful king who is close to his people in every sense, who, who was not only willing to lay down his life, but actually did lay down his life for them. A prophet with the power of God, willing to be numbered with the despised, and whose heart is moved to tears by the plight of his people, and even by the sin of his people. A priest who powerfully clears the way for his people to come to God and who constantly prays for us. Some of us, when we think of our former sins before we came to the Lord, or even when we think of the sins that we did last week, we are pretty ashamed. We're pretty 
disappointed. We are racked with guilt. But this God is not shaking his head at you from a distance. When you're crumpled up on the floor, he is going over to you and picking you up and telling you of his love for you. Look at all these things that he did during Holy Week. All the things that he suffered. Do you think he did that so that you could be crumpled up on the floor, racked with guilt? Did he pay for those sins? Did he pay for the things that we do every day so that we could crawl to him? No. He did those things so that you would know that his unfathomable love is lavished over you at every second. Some of you right now are living in near constant temptation. You battle with desires that you don't understand, you cannot control. And every time those thoughts run through your head, you say, again, why can I not do better? Is that how Jesus thinks of us? Look at this man. Did he lay down his life? Does he even now pray for us constantly? And then when you're tempted, he rolls his eyes at you and says, this guy again? I don't think so. He is sweating blood praying for you right now that the Holy Spirit would empower your will to resist on the battlefield each time you're faced with those temptations. He is with you. He is unstoppably by your side and for you. I hope when you see how Jesus is revealing his love for you, as we unroll the canvas of his love, I hope that your heart is filled with warmth for him. His love goes before us, and his love propels us to love him. Loving him means we have new fuel for obedience. We have new fuel for fighting temptation. We have new fuel for desire to read the Bible, to encounter anew and afresh this surprising Messiah. And for prayer, to talk to this one who will never wall you out when you're in need, but runs towards you like a prodigal father. Some of you, your hearts are in turmoil. You have a loved one who has a chronic illness. Someone's died. You've lost a job. There is a relationship in your life that brings you sharp pain every time you think of it. Jesus is praying for you in that situation. He knows what is happening in that situation. He's thinking about you right now. He's praying for you, crying over you. And not only that, people, he is readying a salvation for you where all those sad things become untrue, as Tim Keller says. Jesus revealed himself on Palm Sunday to be our humble, powerful God who loves us so we can trust him fully. When the stranger came to town, he changed everything. Let us walk in his love and trust in his power. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word that corrects our misconceptions, that shows us who you are. We thank you for how you surprise us so often and give us such great joy as we encounter you, Lord. We pray that you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit, Convince us more and more of your ever-present love and your continuing prayer for us. In Jesus' name, amen.